0: I invite you to please turn with me to our scripture lesson this morning, which is Psalm chapter 1. If you, uh, if you don't have a Bible or are in, and are needing one, please grab one of those Red Pew Bibles in front of you. And please follow along with me as I read. Once again, Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of living water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away, Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Pray with me, Father, as we come now to your word pray that you would be near to us, speaking to our hearts. Be with all of us sinners as we seek to learn from it. Be with me, a sinner, as I preach it. Pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. First, I just have to say, I have to make sure I don't start talking too fast. Because having Sunday school before church means I am more ramped up than usual <laughs> by um, by this point in this service. So hopefully... Hopefully I won't get rolling too fast, but this morning we're believing we're beginning our sermon series for the summer through some psalms I realized I said these psalms last week and had several different people ask me Are you preaching through all of them? And even though I am a fan of long sermon series the answer to that is no it would take like four years Um given breaks that we'd have to take to preach through the entire book and I am not prepared to commit to that We're just going to be doing eight different psalms over the next two months And um, we're trying... I just chose them based off of um, trying to touch on there's different types or genres of psalms, they call them, and we're trying to walk through different kinds of psalms. But um, the Book of Psalms, it's there. I think a lot of people have encountered it. You maybe, like, heard Psalm 23 or something like that. I don't know that we think a lot, though, about what it is. And really what the Book of Psalms is, as we begin into it, is it is the hymn book for ancient Israel. That is to say that if you... if you were around church before they had projectors for everything, we still have them that some people use. You'd have hymnals, right? That's how people knew what to sing. And, um, and so the book of Psalms in ancient Israel seemed to function like that. That one of the priests would get up in the synagogue and say, turn to Psalm 40 and let's sing it together. And then they would all join in singing that psalm. That's what they gathered in worship and sang, at least in part. And within that collection of the psalms, there's a number of different topics and types of psalms. Honestly, probably a lot more topics and types of topics than we're used to in a typical hymnal. There are, for example, psalms of lament and heartache and despair. There are psalms reflecting Israel's history in a detailed way. And there are psalms like we encounter today, which are called wisdom psalms. That is to say that they were songs that were meant to teach God's people basic truths about how to live in the world. The best way I can think of to explain it is it's like those children's those songs you sometimes teach kids to teach them like not to run across the street without looking or something like that. That you want to anchor that in them. It's more complicated than that, but within the Book of Psalms we find these wisdom psalms trying to give us these poetic truths for how we should live in our life. And Psalm one. Which we read this morning is one of those wisdom psalms, meant to contrast two ways of living, that of the righteous and that of the wicked, and call us toward righteousness. It's also worth stressing up front that the psalms are poetry. They used heightened language and imagery, and one of the results of that is that they tend to discuss things in very extreme black and white ways. Um, which is important when we talk about Psalm 1 because like we said, it's this contrast between the righteous and the wicked. And this psalm paints a perfect of the righteous, or a picture of the righteous as almost perfect. And it paints a picture of the wicked as despicable and depraved. And I think we can struggle when we encounter that in places like the psalms, because that doesn't fit with our experience of the world, right? We don't feel like people break down into those simple categories. And in a sense, we shouldn't think they do, because like we said, this psalm is using poetry and heightened language to try to teach us something. So as this psalm draws a contrast between the righteous and the wicked— um, what it's trying to do is not tell me to divide the world into the people that are in each category But rather it's trying to paint these idealized pictures of the two categories To call me towards righteousness and away from wickedness They're not meant to be things that describe us but things that inspire us I always exist as a christian in some mixture of righteous and wicked, righteousness and wickedness I see some of myself in both of these groups But that's actually the point of this psalm. It's contrasting righteousness and wickedness because it wants me to recognize some things about that tension that I live in and call me towards righteousness. It's not a description of where I'm where I am right now, but an inspiration. But like we said, we see that contrast and this psalm really paints that contrast using three pictures. And that's what I want us to look at this morning, just to look at these three pictures it gives us of righteousness and wickedness, so that our hearts might be called away from evil and towards what is good. And the first picture is a picture of where we are seated. Where we are seated. Which probably doesn't make sense stated like that, but start reading in verse 1. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Now right up front, before we talk about what that says, this is poetry, and another thing that that means is that it has a certain structure that's different than the way that people ordinarily talk. If you've read English poetry for most of history, and a great deal of it today, although not all of it, that structure in English poetry has two things. Do you know what they are? They are, the couple of you that are English nerds, are mouthing them, but meter and rhyme. Those are the two things in English poetry. Meter, meaning how many syllables there are in each line, and technically where the accents fall, But and then rhyme, meaning that some of the, the words rhyme. And not every poem follows that, but that's what we're used to, right? Roses are red, violets are blue, sugar is sweet, and so are you. Each of those lines has four syllables, and two and four rhyme. That is not how Hebrew poetry works. Hebrew poetry doesn't have either of those structures. But the structure it uses is called parallelism, right? This is your fancy word for today. It's called parallelism, which means that lines are arranged in these parallel sets of two or three or four. Sometimes they say the same thing in different ways. Sometimes they contrast with each other. Sometimes they build on each other. But I'm pointing this out now, and going into that now, because we'll actually talk about that a number of times through the Psalms, because recognizing that structure actually helps us interpret the psalms and this verse is a good example of how to do that the question we have to ask of a verse like this one is where is the movement that's the question behind parallelism where is the movement because as you see what changes between the lines it starts to give us a sense often of what it's trying to highlight and in this verse we see there's really four lines that are all kind of fitting together the first one introduces the idea this is the blessed person it says and then the next three lines give three examples of what the blessed person does. So look at those lines and ask that question. Where is the movement? What's changing as you walk through them? There's really two things at the same time. One is it's physical movement. So in the first, you know, the first of those three, this person is walking. In the second one, this person is standing. And then in the third one, this person is seated which is this picture of slowing down and becoming more settled, right? We all have a sense that someone who's walking can be moved around more easily, whereas someone, once they've se- gotten seated down, is more rooted in place. And then the second piece of movement is the type of person in each one. The first one is this person that walks in the counsel of the wicked. Not that they're wicked yet, but they're listening to, this, to sinful counsel, um, letting the world tell them what's true and false. And then the second person is standing in the place of sinners. So now they've internalized that, that counsel and they're living out of it, right? They're making um, sinful choices that reflect that counsel. And finally, they are seated in the seat of scoffers. That word scoffer means like mocker or cynic. It's saying that they're not just living out that sin, but they've become hardened in it and they find righteousness and God's ways somehow worthy of mockery. And that's not meant, again, to describe some person you know. That's meant to describe the hardening effect of sin. That as you live in it more, it hardens you more and more. At first, you just listen to sinful counsel, and then it starts to influence you and shape you until eventually you're at this place where you're so set in it that you can't even recognize what you're doing anymore. And then that's contrasted with, um, with the righteous person. The blessed person is not that. But then in verse 2, the blessed person delights in the law of the lord and on his law he meditates day and night so he delights in god's law which by the way does not mean god's list of rules the law was the word that was given i mean initially to the, the torah the first five books of the bible and then over time to the whole of ancient israel scriptures right the, the law was what they called like the bible so it's saying that they delight in god's word in the bible and meditate on it day and night. Um, they take pleasure in it, and, and then they reflect on it constantly. So here's the picture, right? We have this one person who's shaped by the world, and they slowly come to be seated in this hardened place of cynicism. And then you have this other person who, instead of sitting in that seat of mockers, sits down in God's word and studies and meditates on it, and they are therefore shaped by that, which is reflecting us that invites us to reflect on the reality that um, we are constantly being shaped and formed. That's really what these first two verses are trying to point out to us, that we are being shaped and formed in a way that alters our hearts, whether by wicked counsel, which ultimately leads us into sin, or by God's word, which ultimately is going to lead us into righteousness. And that can be hard to see because it's invisible a lot of the time. So think about it like this. Every day, I make a ton of decisions, right? So do you. How many of those decisions do you really sit down and think through? The answer is not many of them, right? And that's not a problem. If I had to sit down and agonize over every decision, I would just, like, live in my basement. Um, I make these decisions, right? And I make them because of common sense, because that just is what feels right to me, and that's how all of us operate in the world. But that common sense doesn't come from nowhere, right? Those kind of senses that we have of things, those are shaped by all kinds of stuff. By family and parents and friends and television advertisements and things that people we respect say and books we read and our senses of loyalty and identity. All this stuff, right, gets jumbled together. And you don't realize that until you go to some other culture. Have you ever done that before? I'm, not, I'm just talking about common sense stuff in your day. You go to, and live in some other culture. And you start to realize that those people just think about certain things differently than you And the reason is because you've had these forces shaping you and they've had different forces shaping them And what seems like common sense to one person just seems like it doesn't make sense at all to somebody else That's true of all those daily choices But that's particularly true of our choices of sin and righteousness Formation isn't just about those innocent things But it's also about those deep heart issues. That we are constantly being shaped by invisible forces in the world to think in a certain way. That that affects us and warps our view of the world. And Psalm 1 invites us to recognize that. That if we walk in that that council, right, that's its picture for that shaping force, we will ultimately be shaped by it. But that the antidote is instead of trying to just change our actions to seek to be formed by another force to delight in God's word and have that be the thing that shapes us instead which is to say that i think we often misunderstand the purpose of the the religious things that we do, right? I mean, so as Christians, Christianity should affect all of our lives in different ways, but there are certain things that people just naturally think of as like the religious stuff. I don't like that term, which is why I'm putting it in quotes, right? But you know, like praying and reading scripture and gathering in church for worship and things like that. And those things, um, those are important, but I think the problem is when we think of them a certain way, we think that they're the point, right? And they're not the point. The point is love for God and love for our neighbors and living these transformed, God-honoring lives in all of the world. But what those things are is formation. Not the destination, but formation. Those are the things that shape our hearts, that alter um, that alter how we think and feel about the world in that basic way that then starts to change how we live in it. So that's the first idea in this psalm That that picture of where we're seated as a picture of formation And we're going to come back to that But let's keep walking through it If you look at verse 3 We get a second picture Which is where we are rooted It gives a contrast of where we are rooted This time it's looking at nature as its image So verse 3 He is like a tree planted by streams of water That yields its fruit in season And its leaf does not wither all he does, he prospers. Again, this is the blessed, the righteous man, and he's shaped by God's word, and he's like a tree, it says, which is an image of strength, right? Trees naturally are images of strength, and this isn't just any tree, but it's a tree planted next to a stream, not some scraggly thing out in the desert. And it is fruitful, and it is lush and green. And then it says, In all he does, he prospers which we should talk about for just a minute, because it's the kind of line that I think we sometimes misunderstand or have questions about. So three things to bear in mind when you read something like that in Scripture. First, this is in a psalm, a poem, so it's an idealized picture, like we've said, right? That's going to be picturing something in an absolute way. Um, Secondly, we also need to let the Bible define its terms when we read something like, Everything he does prospers. We always have to make sure that what we mean by prospering is what the Bible means, which is to say, you can't let the world tell you what prosperity is, and then let the Bible promise it to you, right? Which is what people often do when they, they're like they read a verse like this. And, I mean, when Scripture pictures prosperity, it's picturing contentment and a right relationship with God and with the people around us. And when the world pictures prosperity, it pictures like Bugatti's and Louis Vuitton handbags. And those are not the same thing. And then the third thing to keep in mind is that when the Bible makes statements like this one, we need to always make sure we distinguish between principles and promises. We need to distinguish between principles and promises. Which is to say that there are some things in scripture that are promises and some like this statement, which are principles and here's another example of that Um scripture in this book of proverbs says, you know train up a child in the way they should go and when they are old They shall not depart from it, right? That's familiar to some of us that if you love and teach and appropriately discipline your child that they're going to grow up Well and scripture says that that's a principle and that means that it's generally true But it is not a promise, which means that that does not happen 100% of the time. If you have kids, you know they're their own people, right? And you can seek to do that, but they will ultimately have to make some decisions on their own. And there are times that they will not choose to follow in that way that you've called them to. There is no parenting strategy that 100% of the time makes your kids 100% what you want them to be. But the fact that it is not a promise does not mean that it's untrue, right? While it is true that there are exceptions in our experience of the world, it is also true that um, teaching and loving and appropriately disciplining your child is much more likely to result in their good and them walking in those ways than the opposite, right? We all recognize that there's a general goodness to doing that for our children. Even though it's not something that's gonna it's not like a machine where you just like put in the money and get out exactly what you order So that's a principle not a promise and the same is true of something like this promise that Everything he does prospers, right? Scripture says that as a general principle That this person will find more joy and flourishing Walking in god's call of righteousness than he will walking in the other thing and that's true even though there are obviously specific times where you're seeking to walk out God's call, and you find yourself in the midst of hardship or struggle because of it. So that's the specific phrase, but then back to that overarching image, right? The psalmist is picturing this person who is rooted in God's word like a tree by a stream, and he's bearing fruit, and, and, and she has, you know, these verdant blossoms, and they're rooted in this way that is overflowing in goodness. And then that stands in contrast with verse 4, where it says, The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. So chaff is a word that most of us probably don't use in everyday conversation, uh, but what it pictures, some of you who are farmers might have heard the term, but here's how it worked in ancient agriculture. You had like wheat or whatever, and you'd have the, the little kernels of wheat, and then you'd, have, um, then you'd have the like dry husks of the wheat and the leaves, and they would all be jumbled together. So what you'd do is on a windy day, you'd go up onto this threshing floor that was raised up, and you'd throw it all up in the air. And the wheat, because the wind was blowing through it and it was heavier, it would fall down kind of here, and then the chaff— which is what they called those other lighter things, would get blown away and you know and to the far end of the threshing floor or off of it. And so that's the picture it's using. Chaff is a dry, dead plant that's not rooted in the ground anymore, and the wind is just blowing it away. So this picture, if the first picture says that formation matters in terms of our actions, this picture is trying to say that formation matters in terms of our foundation. That it is saying that as we are shaped and formed by God's word, or the world, that actually affects the, the safety of the foundation that we're rooted in. Um, in this world, sin always rests on some idol, like we've said before. Something that we look to for support and salvation. And idolatry always works on this promise that if you pursue this thing, if you build your life on this thing, it's going to make you safe and feel complete. And that can be an obvious thing, like fame or money or something. And it can be a more subtle thing, like a spouse or a child, just thinking that if we had this perfect relationship, that everything would be safe and secure. It could be our own achievements, or our righteousness, or even our religious observance. Those are all idols, and that's all familiar ground if you've been with us here for a while. But there's really two problems with those idols. The first is that those idols can fail you in this life. They can fail you. Money, right, can run out. Relationships can fall apart. Uh, It can fail you in this life, but even more than that, because those idols can fail us, it means that we can never rest securely on them, even when they aren't failing us, because the possibility there. So you can have lots of money, right? And, and you can, um, and you can have all this money, but you look at it and you recognize on some gut level that I'm not really secure, right? Something could happen. The economy could collapse. My, my house could get hit by a meteor falling from the sky and insurance won't cover it. Something can happen, right? And that will run out. And that means that you never feel secure. You always are seeking more. And that's the problem. That's what the psalm is trying to picture, that if you try to be rooted in some idol, what you really are is rooted in nothing. And that means that ultimately the wind will come and blow you down, whether that thing fails you or not, because it's not actually something that you can be securely rooted in. But that's contrasted then in this psalm with what it means to be rooted in God. That God is the source of life and in control of the universe. That he has shown us love in Jesus and has promised us life um, and has promised to be at work in our lives and does not change and is always there. And that by his nature then, if we make that the foundation of our hope, we are resting in something that cannot fail. That When we look at something else, we have that insecurity in our hearts that I don't know if that thing will be there tomorrow. I don't know if that thing can last. But if you look at God and recognize the truth of who he is— you do have something secure enough to find that comfort and safety in And that's why the Soma says we're blessed when we walk with the lord Not because things will always be great, right? Don't hear what i'm not saying that life and its circumstances can be hard and tough. Absolutely But that in god we have a foundation Where no matter what those circumstances are we can find security So that's two pictures And then one more which is the picture of where we are headed psalmist turns to this third picture of where we are headed, which is to say he starts picturing our ultimate destinies. So look at verse 5. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. So God's judgment he starts talking about. And in scripture, that always really pictures two things at once. That pictures in part God's historical judgment, which is to say that there are times that God moves in history to bring justice, for our wrongs. You think about like that politician or shady businessman, right, whose crimes find them out. It can also mean something more subtle, like God simply letting us suffer the consequences of our sin. If you're cruel and petty to people your whole life, you might well discover, right, that a consequence of that is that they're not there for you when you need them. There's that historical judgment. And then it also includes this ultimate final judgment in Scripture, that at the end of history, God will bring a reckoning evil Um, and when it says that they will not stand in hebrew that is the sense of will not continue to stand which is to say that it's looking towards this future final judgment right when it when it talks about um the sinners being in the congregation of the righteous which is its word for like the gathering of god's people right there are sinners that can stand in the gathering of the church Unfortunately, there are sinners that can even be very powerful and visible in the gathering of the church But it's but this is looking forward to a final judgment and saying that they will not Ultimately continue to stand that they will not be in that place forever That idea of god's judgment can be hard. We'll come back to it in a minute But let's read verse six and then come back. So verse six For the lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish So the way of the wicked will perish, which is kind of what we've been saying, but the first part of that verse is really key to understanding this whole psalm. This is the way that I think most of us read a psalm like this there's the blessed person and the you know and the wicked you know and the wicked person that it's drawing this contrast and we think that the blessed it's like karma is what we think right the blessed person is blessed because they do all this great stuff and the wicked person is then judged because of their evil and the second half of that is there in this picture in the psalm but the first half actually isn't, right? What makes the difference here? Um, it's not that the righteous person somehow knows the Lord really well or does all this stuff for the Lord, but his hope is that the Lord knows the way of the righteous. That it's the, and it's that relational knowing when it says that, right? It's not saying that God knows the way of the righteous like intellectually. It's saying that God is in relationship with them, the way I know a person. That's actually a theme that runs through the whole psalm. If you go back and look at verse 2, right? While um, the the blessed man is being praised for not walking in the counsel of the wicked, what's being praised about him isn't that he's got righteousness all figured out, but that he's seeking it, that he sits and delights in God's word and meditates on it. It isn't that they have avoided wickedness. It's that they're delighting in God and, you know, and being known by him. Or verse 3, when it says he's like a tree planted by streams of water— There is a cause and effect there, and the effect is that person's righteous life, right? But that's not the cause. The cause is that they're rooted in God, that they're rooted next to that stream. The tree is fruitful because of where it's planted. It's not planted by the stream because it's bearing fruit. I point all of that out. Because what's important to recognize in this psalm is that righteousness is good, but this isn't saying that God rewards really good people and punishes really bad people. It is saying that the consequence of wickedness is painful and broken, and so what we ought to do instead is to seek to be formed in ways that grow us in righteousness. What we're being called into is to begin the journey pursuing righteousness, not to have arrived. That's the point of verse 6, too. The righteous person stands in the day of judgment not because of how great they are, but because they are known by God. He loves them, and they have entered into relationship with him. Which helps us in the first place, I think, with the idea of judgment. Even in this psalm, where we're dealing with an idealized picture of the righteous and the wicked, we aren't saying that God's judgment is karma. And we certainly are not saying that Christians somehow don't deserve God's judgment while non-Christians do. Instead, what we are saying is is this. This is how judgment works in scripture, right? That all of creation is broken because we, we have rebelled against God. And we so God belongs at the center of creation, and when he's at the center, everything works as it's supposed to. And we love each other, and we work in the world in an appropriate way. And as we took God out of the center of creation, everything else fell apart. That's the idea, right? Um, God comes into the story to restore creation and fix the world. And in the process of that, he offers us salvation, which does not mean that he tells us to go be perfect, but that he offers to bring us back into relationship with him. He gives us a way to begin to learn to have him back at the center of our universes. And, 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 and that doesn't mean that we we're perfect at that in this life, but it does mean we've made that fundamental change, right? That, we're, that we, in, in becoming a Christian, we're willing to say, all right, yes, you belong back at the center. And so those people who are saved are not saved because they somehow didn't take God out of the center, but because he's beginning to train them to put it back. But here's what that means, right? That means that if we don't enter into that restored relationship, if we reject that um, offer of salvation, and we re- then we're refusing to put God back at the center. And the problem with that is that, that we have this idea that God should just overlook that, right? That he should just say, well, that's no big deal. Let's just, you know, we'll just all be buddies, you know, and, and not worry about that. But the problem is that if God restores creation, and what broke it is human beings refusing to have God at the center, if he restores creation without us as human beings being restored— we're just going to break it again. I mean, that's that's the biblical picture of why judgment, in a sense, is necessary. That God's only response, if he's going to restore the world, and if we refuse to bend our knee and put him back at the center, is that we have to be removed from the world. And that's what the Bible is really talking about when it talks about God's judgment. Um, C.S. Lewis puts it like this. He says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to god thy will be done and those to whom god says in the end thy will be done Which is to say that in a real sense um, All of us are choosing Which world we want to live in that in rebelling against god what we are saying Is I don't want anything to do with you. I don't want to have you at the center of things leave me to my own devices And in god's judgment in a real sense that is what he does it's just that For God to actually do that, God who is the source and author of every good and blessed thing, is a far harder um, reality than any of us realize. God is daily, constantly gracious to all of us, giving us good gifts in his creation, shielding us from the consequences of our wrong actions, and in judgment what God does is stop that, which is in a sense what we're demanding that he do. He lets us fully experience what we demand. But again, again, escaping that doesn't mean that we don't deserve that, right? Because the point of this is we've all removed God to the center from the center, and and judgment is what happens simply because God cannot um, God cannot restore us to that place of blessing and communion with Him without us bending a knee and recognizing He's at the center. Not that we perfectly live out of it. Not that we arrive there, but simply that we acknowledge that He is Lord. There's that picture of God's judgment. That's heavy stuff. But again, that picture isn't the point of this psalm. Rather, it's meant to be a third picture to remind us of the same truth, which is to say that all of these pictures are reminding us that we are blessed because if God is the foundation of our lives. That's the point of that first picture, right? That the blessed person is formed by God's word and seeking to let God be the one that's shaping them. And that's the point of the second picture. That the blessed person is blessed because they're rooted in God and drawing life from them. And that's the point of the third picture, too. That when the winds of judgment blow, none of us can stand against it on our own. The question is whether we know and are known by God that we can survive those winds. Because otherwise all of us would fall under the condemnation of what we have done. But this psalm is inviting us to recognize in all three of these pictures is that we, as human beings, if we desire blessing and righteousness, must seek to have our lives rooted in a relationship with God. Which then leads to that obvious final question for us. Are we doing that? And how do we do that? As I thought about it, I think the simplest way to answer that question, from a psalm like this one, is with this other question, which is simply where in our priorities is that relationship with god for us not just what we say but you know what, what what do we live out in our lives because relationships in a real sense require time and action they require us to spend time together i don't know if you've ever had this experience i have it in marriage sometimes where i'll be feeling kind of distant and you know and irritable with my wife and you know and frustrated with her and then I realized that we just haven't really spent time together for for several weeks right that we've um because we haven't been doing things that help us grow together we're starting to to grow apart and the way you address that is by seeking to pour, you know to invest in and make a priority that spending time with each other working on your relationship and our relationship with God works the same way That's what the psalm is saying as it pictures um, the need to do things like meditate on God's word. It's saying that those things like worship and prayer and the study of God's word and fellowship, I mean, those are the date nights and intentional conversations of our spiritual relationship. Those are the things that build up and invest in that relationship we have with God that helps us to drill down our roots into that foundation. I say that, and I know that you have to Clarify that a little bit. I'm not saying first of all that those things always feel awesome or are easy Or seem profound every time you do them Not every evening I set aside to spend with elizabeth is like some, you know fireworks and hundred dollar dinner or something like that Um, But they still matter because they invisibly bind us together And I also know that some of us seek after that kind of relationship with god and feel discouraged Because it's hard and we feel like we're failing and to that, I would say, well, in part, just welcome to the club. I am a pastor, and it is easy for me to get so busy doing things that I neglect my relationship with God. But I would also say, keep trying. Remember what we said back at the beginning, that what this psalm is presenting is two idealized pictures of the righteous and the wicked. And the point of that is not to tell us that if we're not righteous that we should give up, point of that is instead to say, look at these two places you can go, and then seek to move in the direction of blessing and righteousness. Not that you'll get there tomorrow, not that you'll ever fully get there in this life, but that as you see those two things, get up and try again today to be pursuing the good one. And then lastly, if you've never done that, I know I talk about those investing time in your relationship with God, and some of us are in a place where we're trying and have good habits, and some of us are in a place where we're trying and don't. Um, But some of us hear that, and it's like a foreign country. And if that's you, I would just invite you to take the first step, to try to set aside some time um, of worship, of prayer, of reading scripture. And let me encourage you in that that while that's not going to be magic and that's not going to suddenly be like fireworks exploding in the sky, that that is good because God is there. And as much as you seek to cultivate that deeper life with him, you will begin to experience that support and blessing that comes from having him as your foundation. Because that's the truth. After all the caveats and all the recognizing of poetic language and stuff like that, that that blessed person is truly God does provide a foundation in which we can rest even though the world rages around us. He is a support and a rock that does not move. And the more that we seek to know him and be known by him, the more freedom and security we begin to feel as we experience that relationship. Would you pray with me? God and Father, I give you thanks that you are there and that you have known us. And I pray that we might therefore know you and follow after you. I pray that you would guide our hearts and encourage us to press ever onward towards experiencing the blessing of you, relationship with you. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ.